Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section below on my Critical Q&A shows or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, a couple of things. Um, I think it was last week that I talked about uh, the changes that have been happening with the fee structure in Patreon, and um, that is canceled. That is, they, they actually listened to their credit. The Patreon uh, CEO, Jack, whatever his name is, put out an email this week saying that they were not implementing those changes. There is not going to be any change to the system or the service fees or any of that. So that is very good news. Um, I guess all the tweets and emails and everything Thing reached them and they realized that they had not consulted with the creators and how the creators on Patreon who actually make up their product uh, actually felt about that and that was very refreshing and something new and different. I wish YouTube would uh, also sort of take a page from Patreon's uh, roll out there because uh, they tend to not listen too much to their creators, at least as far as I can tell as a low-level creator. Uh, and the input I have given YouTube has meant practically nothing. Uh, so we'll see but anyway, what happens with that. And I'm a little, there's a little bitterness there because YouTube continues to flag my videos as advertiser unfriendly. Um, and then you have to ask for a manual review and then usually after the review, then the video is okayed for uh, advertising, in other words, you know, so that I can uh, receive some revenue on it. And, um, and sometimes that's, that flies and, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't. And, um, and it's just been a little frustrating because my content is educational and informative and is not a, I do not run a hate site here. And uh, I think that, you know, everyone should be uh, potentially able to listen to what I have to say without, uh, you know, being uh, offended or freaked out or, or, you know, I'm not promoting uh, cults or, or hate or anything like that. So it's a little frustrating to be at the uh, receiving end of, of YouTube's algorithm, which consistently flags my videos as not advertiser friendly. And every time I have to ask them, hey guys, hello, come on, you know, so I don't know what the hell's going on with YouTube. But it's just an ongoing struggle and I'm just bitching about it to you guys because you probably have some input and care about that matter. Um, I did want to though, uh, I did want to acknowledge that, you know, on Patreon some supporters come and some supporters go and I'm, I don't know if I lost folks specifically because of the threatened changes that occurred or if there were other reasons, but I did want to acknowledge that I gained some people too uh, and I wanted to acknowledge you guys as supporters supporters of this channel. Uh, that was uh, Brinkley Sharp, uh, Jessica Freeman, Tandra Ford, uh, let's see, Yvonne Woolman upped her uh, monthly amount. Thank you very much, as did Colette uh, Mallet. Thank you very much for your ongoing support. Uh, let's see, Ashley Kruger and uh, David Overton. Okay, I wanted to acknowledge you guys as uh, having signed on here uh, in December. Thank you very much for your support and for uh, helping to keep this channel going by allowing me to have the time necessary to do the work that I do here. All right, all that being said, let's go ahead and, uh, oh, one last thing is I am wearing my Star Wars shirt today in, in honor and recognition of the new Star Wars The Last Jedi movie, which I saw opening night, uh, first show here in Denver. 
And it was meh, you know, it was all right. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. It wasn't like a horrible, awful movie as far as I'm concerned, although I am seeing some hate towards it. Um, I thought that it was slow in the pacing. I thought that they needed better editing. Um, but I was, I was kind of okay with how the whole thing ended. And so I was kind of okay with the whole movie, but, um, but I, I, that's my spoiler free review. I'm not going to say anything else about it because I want you guys to, to check it out and then we'll have more deep conversations about what was really wrong with that movie, uh, later. All right. So let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Roman Kolosinek. How does the Church of Scientology decide where to establish a presence in a new area? Scientology critics like yourself, Mike Rinder, and Leah Remini state the church is after money and that one needs a lot of money in order to go up the bridge. Well, Mike Rinder posted a poster of speakers coming from the Cincinnati org to the Cleveland Mission on December 2nd. The Scientology Cleveland Mission is in Parma, a suburb of Cleveland and as blue collar as you can get. One would think they would try to establish themselves either downtown or in a white collar suburb. If the Church of Scientology has all this money, then renting or paying for property in a high-rent, high-priced district should not be any problem. All right, Roman. Well, I'm glad you uh, emailed me about this question because uh, it indicates that you actually have no idea how the missions are different from the orgs of Scientology. So let's talk about this. Um, I have talked about how there are, I, I've put the entire hierarchy and organizational structure of Scientology into video form as, as a, a very early video I did years ago called Scientology's Organizational Madness. Uh, but let's talk about, in more detail, about the difference between a Church of Scientology, which is a mission of Scientology, versus a Church of Scientology, which is an org, or what is called a Class 5 org, which is your city-level church. Okay, I've referred to those as city-level churches, but I can see how that could be confused with missions. The way a mission starts is it's a, there's a mission holder. And that is a Scientologist who has decided that he individually wants to get the rights to deliver Dianetics and Scientology. He wants to sell Dianetics and Scientology materials and deliver certain Scientology services. Uh, and that is a franchise operation. And it's run by the mission holder who buys the rights to deliver those services and sell those materials from the Church of Scientology. He's licensed by the church as an individual to start a group. It's on him to rent the location, to hire the staff, to implement Scientology policy in such a way that he will run his mission according to how Scientology wants it to be run. But Scientology, the, the, the management hierarchy of Scientology does not issue week-to-week -week orders to the mission holder in the same way that the orgs are managed, okay? The, it's a much lighter touch with, with missions uh, because the mission holder is basically like, hey, you make it or break it, it's all up to you. He pays an initial amount of money, and I think it's in the order of twenty-five dollars to $30,000 for what's called a mission starter package. Those are the legal contracts that he signs, and then a basic set of, um, of Dianetics books, Dianetics uh, auditing introductory kits, uh, Scientology basic books, I think there's an e-meter thrown in there, films, uh, there's a film station that is set up, and it might even be more than $30,000 at this point. It might even be as high as forty. dollars um, I'm not... 
I'm not totally sure, but I do know it's at least $25,000. And, um, and you, get a, you get a film projector set up and system, right? And, um, and with all of this, it's on you to go open up a mission and you'll get help from the Scientology Missions International branch of the Scientology hierarchy, okay? Scientology Missions International, or SMI as it's called in Scientology, is a Sea Org outfit. It's a Sea Org management unit that is responsible for uh, make, getting, you know, selling people these mission starter packages. So they encourage, they try to find Scientologists and sell them these things to get them to open up a mission. But they don't really care where the missions are opened or what part of town or they don't really have a lot of say in that. It's up to the mission holder to do that. So this place in Parma was chosen by the guy who runs it in Parma, who's probably lives in Parma. And that's probably why he set it up there. Okay. Um, it's not, Scientology doesn't pay for the building, doesn't do any fundraising for it. That's not how missions work, okay? The missions are a whole different thing from ideal orgs and the organizational structure that we've talked about uh, in the Class 5 orgs. Sea Org members do not regularly go to missions. They might go every now and again, but they're not routinely going in the same way that they go to the orgs. And Sea Org members don't come down and run missions. There have only been a handful of cases where uh, there, was a, there was sort of a, a big uh, bunch of missions in the 1980s in California that were forcibly converted into organizations. Scientology does have, the Church of Scientology does have the right to do that. They can come in and basically just take it away. And that's probably in some fine print in the, in the legal contracts that they, that they have with the mission holders. Um, I've never looked at the contracts, so I'm just guessing at that. But I do know for a fact that Scientology, the Church of Scientology International, has sent Sea Org members in two missions that were troublesome for some reason and has taken them over and has converted them into Class 5 orgs. That's happened uh, with, that's what happened with Santa Barbara, San Diego, Pasadena, uh, the Church of Scientology, the Valley. Those all used to be missions. Uh, Orange County used to be a mission, and they were all converted to orgs in the, in the early 1980s. Um, that also happened with Los Gatos in California later when I was in management. That, that mission was taken over and converted into an org because the mission holder and the, and the people who were running the mission had somehow created some kind of massive flap, big problem for the church. And so the Sea Org went in there and just took it over. But normally speaking, that's, that's very unusual. That does not, that's not the normal course of events. Um, generally the idea or the sort of evolutionary idea with Scientology missions is that a mission holder will get a, get a Scientology mission started, build it up, get it going, make it really successful, be making money from it because the mission holder has the right to make money from his mission. It's a profit activity and they only have to send a certain percentage of their regular weekly income up as tithing or, or you know, licensing fees, whatever they want to call it, to Scientology International. As long as Scientology International is getting its money, they leave the missions alone pretty much. Um, and so that's kind of how missions operate, right, as far as I understand it. Now, since the 1980s, uh, missions have been on the decline. 
They got a really bad name in the 1970s and 80s with Scientology International and with the Sea Org because they were so successful. Because there was a hands-off approach to dealing with missions and Hubbard said, yeah, just let them, you know, they'll make or break themselves. As long as we're getting our, our percentage from them every week, we don't really have a lot to say about the missions. Well, the missions were thriving and the orgs weren't. And that was a big sore spot uh, with the Sea Org, right, and with, uh, with the churches, right? So you had in Los Angeles, you had all these outlying missions, like the one in, there was one in uh, Burbank, there was one in Santa Barbara, San Diego, these places, Pasadena, they were thriving. My, when my parents were on staff in the 70s, they were on staff at the Pasadena Mission. And it was a going concern. They were delivering a thousand hours of auditing a week. They had staff. They were getting paid. They, the place looked pretty, you know, pretty swanky. And the Sea Org just hated that, right? And, uh, and so certain elements in, in management, uh, you know, started telling Hubbard, hey, these missions are off the rails. They're, they're ripping you off. Hubbard, you know, rah, they're ripping me off, rah, you know, and take them down. And then there was this entire fiasco that happened in the early 80s where the mission network was, um, you know, subjugated and, and, and punished by the Sea Org for being successful and for basically doing exactly what Hubbard said. Uh, now, the mission holders were also doing some other creaky, not so good things, like setting up their own credit union in California and um, and doing some other nonsense, right? So it wasn't like it was good guys and bad guys. It was all kind of just, you know, guys. But uh, but that's what that's what happened. And ever since that whole takeover, and ever since that whole like you know beatdown that happened with the missions in the '80s, it's been pretty hard to sell mission packages, and there has not been a lot of effort on the part of Scientology to do that. Uh, you get little peaks every now and again, but for the most part, missions are, are just kind of ignored and not really paid a lot of attention to. Um, I mean, certainly when I was in management from 1995 until uh, 2003 or so, I mean, missions were just, you know, may, maybe one would open, a new, a new mission would open in the West U.S. maybe once a year or something. I mean, it was not common to see new missions opening up at all and they'd close just as fast as they were opening because guys would you know go off to try to make it happen and then fail miserably more often than not and uh and at the, these days i don't even know you know how you'd even begin to start a mission because uh, if you start calling it scientology then you know you're just instantly setting yourself up to fail uh but they're out there and they 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 keep trying and so um so in terms of addressing all the points of your question, uh, the missions are never going to be subsidized by management. They're never going to be, uh, there's not a lot of, there's no fundraising that goes on for missions. No money from Scientology International is going to come down to a mission to get it better quarters or tell them what to do as far as where they're going to move. Um, so that's why, you know, what you're seeing there in Cincinnati is very different from the org situation that I talk about here on this channel and you might have seen Mike talk about or Leah talk about and I hope that that's now clearer to you what that's all about. Lori Pacheco, I have a question that I hope is not too personal. I mean no disrespect to you Chris. In Scientology statistics are very important. Whether you are considered a good person or not is dependent on production and expansion. The work you do now is also very statistics driven. How many views, likes, shares, and pledges? Do you have trouble applying old feelings to new circumstances? 
Do you avoid looking at your stats on Thursdays or have other protocols to avoid doing what Scientology told you to do and think vis-a-vis -vis statistics? Thanks for the question, Lauren. It's not too personal at all. Um, no, I do not run my channel on statistics. And in, on YouTube, they're called analytics, is how they refer to this, the, the section where you can go and look at your views and dislikes and likes and subscribers and all kinds of you know, watch time metrics and, and different, different graphs that they show you. And you can compare and contrast and do all this stuff. And I've, I've dived in there and looked at that. But frankly, it's mostly just kind of confusing to me. Uh, how the analytics of YouTube actually work, what's important and what's not. YouTube has updated its algorithm over the years, even in the few years that I've been uh, a YouTuber, which is really only the last three or four. Um, they've changed how the algorithm judges what is and isn't a good video and what videos get put up in the trending uh, page and, and that sort of thing. So I tend to just really not pay a lot of attention to it. My, the, the, the thing that drives my channel is the comments and feedback that I receive from you guys. The overall number of views that I get on videos tells me how popular a, a subject matter might be. Um, sometimes it's a little disappointing when I put a lot of hard work into a video and it only gets a few hundred views, doesn't even break a thousand. That's generally for me a, a gauge that I have failed somehow in getting across what I'm trying to talk about. Um, and I understand that, you know, on this channel people are mainly here to hear about me talking about Scientology. Um, but I think I've shown that I have good things to say about lots of other things too, so I try to broaden that out. But you know, it is what it is. I've built this channel on, on what I've built it on. And so, you know, some of the things that other things that I have, uh, that I talk about aren't so popular, whatever. Um, that's kind of how I kind of gauge things. I look at the, uh, the likes and the dislikes on videos, but generally my ratio is really good on, uh, on the likes to dislikes thing. And so if I get a substantial number of dislikes on something, I either know that I really screwed up, which really hasn't, hasn't happened too much, uh, or somebody is actually on, a, on some kind of roll to, uh, to, to make you know, that particular video somehow be disliked or something, right? And that's only happened once or twice. So, so it's not, you know, the, the likes, dislikes thing is not a huge thing for me. Uh, I, you know, I, I like it when you like my videos, but it's not something I, I, I particularly am watching very, very closely. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Patreon and my, and my Patreon support, well, that's just a, a, a you know, I, I like to get Patreon supporters and I, and I sort of watch, you know, when there's additions and subtractions and stuff from that and try to, and try to look and see, you know, what notes did people leave as to when they are, you know, taking away their pledges of support from Patreon. Why did that happen? Was it something I said, something I did, you know, I try to watch for that, but there's no graphs in Chris Shelton's life anymore. <laughs> There's no statistics. There's no, none of that. You know, I'm not using any Scientology ethics conditions or, or any of that. I hated doing that when I was in Scientology. That was never something that I particularly enjoyed doing. I thought that when I was a manager and I was looking over the statistics of the orgs that I was managing, there were comparatives and, and contrasting of statistics one to another that would tell you things about the organizations. You could use those statistics to kind of gauge how things were going, and then you use the data to find out why. 
the, the, the way the mantra in Scientology is the statistics tell you what's happening and then the data analysis and the evaluation tells you why it's happening and what to do about it. And there's a certain degree of workability to that system. I did manage to turn some things around statistically in organizations uh, as a manager and that was how I lived and died so I had a lot of incentive to do that. But personally, when it came to Thursday at 2 and I had to, you know, look at my own statistics and write up a condition of what I was going to do for this following week, my battle plan is what it's called, uh, to, to revert the condition if it was down or keep it going up if it was up. I hated that. Most of that was cut and paste from the week before. And it was, you know, just just reorganizing the targets on my battle plan uh, to keep doing basically the same thing I was doing. And I'd say for the last years that I was a manager and really being, you know, being watched on what my battle plan was, um, I, you know, I just kind of cut and pasted it. It was just sort of a, a you know, a dial it in sort of thing. I, I wasn't really very... Uh, enamored with the whole statistical situation and, and condition situation as a Sea Org member. And then, you know, once I got on the, the RPF and got off the RPF and was traveling around and stuff, weekly conditions, again, were just pretty, pretty cut and paste. So that was kind of my attitude then after I got out of it. I couldn't, you know, I lost no sleep <laughs> not using any of that. And I, um, therefore, was able to shed thinking with all of that stuff pretty, pretty quickly. I still have a habit when I look at my YouTube analytics, for example, on a long term of looking at a graph going up or going or level or going down and, and, and just automatically assigning a condition to it. But that's just a mental, you know, habit. That's almost muscle memory for my brain. It's not like I'm thinking, ooh, wow, that's an emergency. I really need to apply the emergency condition to that. That's not, that's not how I think anymore. So that's um, kind of how I manage things. I know that there are other YouTubers who pay a lot of attention to analytics, and I've looked at videos and tried to get trained up a bit on how to do that, but frankly, it all just goes over my head. And, um, and, and so the main thing I do to try to keep this channel going and keep the quality high is I just concentrate on putting out good content for you guys. And that's, that's my number one uh, priority on the channel. Kath T. You've said that homosexuals never be allowed on the OT levels. But do you know if Scientologists have become convinced or convinced their auditor that they've been cured of homosexuality and then allowed to move up the bridge? Just to be clear, I don't believe in people being cured of homosexuality, nor that they need to be. Hey, Kath, of course, you know, I'm, I'm sure you don't have anything about homosexuality or any of that just by asking that question, so no worries there. Um, yes, I actually, to answer your question directly, yes, I did see instances of people cured of their homosexuality due to Scientology auditing. The idea was to audit the gay away, and there were various Scientology processes and procedures that be used in order to address people's aberrations, as they call it in Scientology, on their second dynamic, meaning the area of their life dealing with sex, family, and sexual matters. So, um, there, you know, sometimes it was addressed with evil intentions, uh, stripping away evil intentions a person had in the area of sex. Sometimes it was addressed with uh, Dianetic auditing. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of auditing called expanded Dianetics that deals with 
Uh, it's a kind of a high-level Dianetic auditing that was developed in the early 1970s, which uses an e-meter, and was directed to find um, major cases, major instances of psychosis and evil intentions and evil purposes on a case uh, using Dianetics procedure. All right, so I've seen expanded Dianetics used because uh, Hubbard was of the idea in the technical materials of Scientology that homosexuality is aberrant uh, behavior and is driven by a, a, a sort of an evil idea, right? And at, at its core, there's this like evil idea to do away with the race or the species, right? Because you're not procreating. Uh, that's the main reason Scientologists have a problem with it is because it's a, it's, it's, you know, the idea for them is that by being homosexual, you are going against your gender, you're going against your biology, you're going against the whole purpose of, of, of being alive as a member of a species, right? And so therefore there must be some serious, you know, mental stuff going on, which means that there must be serious instances in the past of you having done some things that were pretty catastrophic in terms of destroying a race or a species or something like that that causes you to feel the impulse or need to continue acting in such an aberrant behavior that's destructive towards the good of the species, okay? Another way that's addressed, though, is also uh, with uh, valence auditing, right? In Scientology, the word valence is a term to describe a personality or a package personality that a person could put on or take off like a coat. It's, it's, that, it's like, you're, like you're in a valence. That valence is not your personality. It's somebody else's personality, right? When you refer to your character or personality or who you are, you don't refer to your valence. You say that's who you are. That's you. But if you start acting like your mom or your dad or your boss or somebody else, then you're in their valence. You're taking on their personality traits, right? And uh, Hubbard said that this would happen all the time. People do this constantly, right? Um, and you do see it. I mean, it's not like it's, you know, uh, like this is just a, a, a fantasy idea. I mean, you see kids who look and act exactly like their parents, have, you know, have eye problems, have this, have that. And I'm sure there's a certain amount of genetics to that, of course. Uh, but there's also the fact that you're being raised by these people, so you act like those people, right? And that's so you you could say that a child could could be in the valence of one or both of his parents, for example. Or um, you know, you might see a um, I don't know, you know, some kid who gets bullied, and then he starts acting like a bully. And so, in Scientology parlance, you would say that 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 victimized kid has gone into the valence of the bully and now bullies other people. And so therefore that would be aberrant behavior. You'd want to deal with that. You'd want to get the kid to get back into being just himself. So there are processes that Hubbard developed in order to find and sort of, you know, separate a person from other personalities or other valences. And there's an, there's an assumption made in Scientology that if you're homosexual, you are in the valence of someone who represents the opposite gender. And that might be another way of, of tackling or dealing with uh, homosexuality or bisexuality. So um, all of this, of course, is kind of nonsense because uh, I, I mean, at least my, from my own personal perspective, uh, I, you know, I've, I've, I've come to realize after leaving Scientology that homosexuality is often not a choice. 
and uh, people are just born with certain proclivities and, and ideas and, and attitudes about sex and sexual behavior, and that's just kind of where they're coming from. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, not my business or yours or anybody's to dictate to them how or uh, why they feel that way, how they should feel, what, what they should be doing. It's, it, it's nobody's business, right? Uh, but there are people who have, you know, mostly a religious mindset who feel that it's as a violation of God's law or natural law or whatever, and that's kind of where Hubbard was coming from as well. Uh, that it was a is a uh, you know a violation of of uh, being a good part, good member, uh, you know, good procreating survival uh, member of the species. Okay, so that's kind of the whole attitude about it in Scientology, and that's why they look down on it. And that's how they try to address it. So I hope that is uh, helpful. And uh, and yes, I've seen some people respond to that in such a way that they said that they had been cured. And uh, and whether that really worked or not, well, I guess you could ask Catherine Bell. <laughs> Nick C. Until 2011 or so, Scientology used to put up an elaborate Christmas display called L. Ron Hubbard's Winter Wonderland, if memory serves, on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. A lot of nighttime work went into this, and if critics are to be believed, occupational safety was a big issue, and a lot of work on the site was done by Sea Org members who were on the RPF. Are there any personal or perhaps secondhand anecdotes you can share about this, including the reasons for the eventual discontinuation of this tradition? Hey Nick, yeah, I actually do have some personal experience from this when I was on the RPF. Now, I looked this up, and according to uh, what the church is putting out, the Winter Wonderland did not stop in 2011. It's been uh, something ongoing ever since 1983. Maybe they skipped some years, that's entirely possible, but as of now, they are promoting that they're doing Winter Wonderland this year. So, that's still up and out there, and yeah, the RPF are definitely, uh, you know, the workforce that was used in order to set it up and break it down. And we went out there many cold nights uh, because we were out there late at night, early, early in the morning, um, and we were, you know, OSHA standards to address that particular issue were kind of optional on the RPF. It's not that we were not aware of them, and it's not that we weren't told to follow them, but in the haste and, and flurry and hurry of getting all the work done that we were doing, and the intense, you know, production demand to go, 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 taka, 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 let's go. Uh, you know, you could never stand and be idle. You could never be uh, cautious and reserved and thinking about what job, you know, how should we get this job done. It was dive in and just do it. Always. So, in, in that kind of hectic, frantic work environment, OSHA standards, you know, are sort of, yeah, I guess, if I have time for them and if I think of them. So, you have guys up there, you know, nailing things and, and they're standing up on a roof and balanced precariously on a ladder or somebody's holding them up or all kinds of goofy stuff that goes on on the RPF in order to get the work done on a, in a timely fashion. And, uh, you know, safety considerations are always secondary to getting the product, right? I think, um, I think one time, this is probably embodied not, not on a Winter Wonderland thing, but just to kind of get the attitude of the RPF across. Very early on, like in the first week or two that I was there, we were um, carrying Egyptian style, meaning we were, we were lugging this thing up stairs, right? Um, uh, there were about five or six of us carrying an extremely heavy, fully built, 
uh, piece of furniture, I believe it was. And it was a very intricate piece of furniture. It was very nicely put together. It had been painted and lacquered and, and, it, was, and it was nice, right? And it was also really heavy. And we were carrying this thing from the second floor mill down to the ground floor for transport. Uh, and it had not been packaged up yet or put in plastic and cardboard. That was being done down at the ground level. So we're carrying this thing down there and I'm banging against the wall and, and this thing is, you know, gonna, and my hand is between the, the piece of furniture and the, and the concrete wall as we're navigating the stairs going around from one stairwell down to another. And uh, my hand's in the way and it's about to be crushed. And this guy says, better your hand than this piece of furniture. Right, and I was like a little horrified by that statement, and I did not agree with it. But I was, you know, having to carry this thing or being part of the team carrying it, and uh, and it was, you know, made pretty clear by that and the other looks that I got from the other guys that if I screwed this up, and you know, damaged this piece of furniture in any way, this tiniest little ding, and it would have been my ass. So. That's the attitude about, you know, things in the RPF, is you're the expendable one, not the piece of furniture or whatever it is that you've made or whatever work you're doing. So that very much carried over into Winter Wonderland, uh, this joyous, happy Christmas <laughs> setup that the church does in order to draw people in and convince people that Scientology is A-OK -okay and is in there with the community, always part of you know, a, a productive and, and friendly part of the community, right? Which is just total nonsense uh, because they can't even be friendly and nice with themselves and with their own people, much less with the community at large. It's all just a big show. So that's, uh, that's what I can say about Winter Wonderland. Brittany Gatchel. You've spoken about how recently, in the last 10 to 20 years, that OTs have been sent back down the bridge to do lower levels. How does this work with staff and Sea Org members? It doesn't make sense to me from an operations perspective. That would be in the interest of a business to retrain employees on steps that have already been done. I'm guessing this doesn't happen to staff and Sea Org members. Does it? And if it doesn't happen, what is the justification? Money? For public to redo levels. Hey Brittany, thanks for the question. It's a good one. And, um, and this is where I get to talk about uh, and show you guys, do a little show and tell here. So in um, July 2nd, 1993, I got this clear bracelet. <laughs> I went clear and I wore this thing for years, right? I was very, very proud of it. And uh, I was a staff member at the time. And then I joined the Sea Org in 1995 and I was a clear Sea Org member all the way up until about 2003 or four when I had my clear status revoked just like every other Sea Org member and staff member who had achieved the state of clear, or almost all of us, uh, because we were being treated the exact same way as the public. The, the technical standards of Scientology, whatever they are, okay, whatever David Miscavige says is a clear or an OT or a purification rundown completion or whatever, whatever he says applies equally to all Scientologists, whether they're paying for their services or whether they're doing them as staff or public. When you're a staff member or a, or a Sea Org member, then you get your services for free. So it's not 
but but there are there the 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 thing you're getting out of the Sea Org members and the staff members is not money. You're getting their time and their energy and their their dedication, right? So Miscavige doesn't care about the staff or the Sea Org members as long as they keep working. And if they have to redo their lower levels, well, that just keeps them busy for longer too, because the whole incentive of Miscavige to make people redo these lower levels is because he doesn't have anything else for them to do. He's run out of answers. He's run out of levels. He's not, he's not uh, supposed to be the source of Scientology, right? He's only supposed to be the, the emissary or the, you know, the guy running the show who is using what Hubbard left him to keep the show going. Well, Hubbard didn't leave him OT levels 9 through 15. So he's got this grade chart that says that there are these OT levels, but he doesn't have them. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to, instead of inventing them, apparently instead what he's going to do is he's going to make people rehash all these lower levels and make them pay for the, the privilege if they're public. But if they're staff, eh, whatever, just go back and do them again. And, and for staff members, you know, it takes much longer than it does for public because they don't have the same number of resources available to them and they don't have as much time on their hands as, as public people do. So, uh, so it's really a, a, you know, a real problem for them. But as a Sea Org member, when I left the Sea Org after 17 years of, of, of duty uh, working for the Sea Org, I had been put back at the same place on the bridge that I was literally the day I walked into Scientology when I was 15 years old. I was going to have to redo everything. Uh, and that was just how it was. So that's how Miscavige is running things. And I think, uh, I think I've said why I believe that that is the case. So there's your answer. Thunder! Lightning! It's time for Flash Answers. Logamug. What was the last Scientology viewpoint slash approach you removed from your life? Okay, well maybe there's a long, long answer to this, but I'm just using this, I'm just doing this as a Flash Answer right now. So the answer is um, the idea that saving the world is possible and that it's something I should spend my time working on. <laughs> that is the last thing. Uh, and it's pretty recent uh, that I've kind of been stripping away out of my head. Um, and there's, yeah, anyway, that's, that's the answer to the question. Guardian of Fire 666. So, do they tell anyone that he is initially a science fiction writer? Just curious. Yeah, Scientology is quite proud of the fact that L. Ron Hubbard was a writer of some renowned in the field of pulp fiction. And science fiction, you know, he keeps getting labeled with this thing of being a science fiction writer. I think we really need to be clear on the fact that Hubbard's, the majority of what Hubbard wrote was not science fiction. And it was not even his most favored field to write in. He wrote across lots of different genres and um, and he was more into the adventure stories than he was into science fiction. Inquisitor 6321. There's a rumor out there that Quentin Tarantino is going to direct the next Star Trek, J.J. Abrams' version. It's supposedly already rated R. What are your thoughts and considerations about this? My thoughts and considerations? How Scientology of you to ask me that. Um, <laughs> I, it's not already rated R because movies aren't rated until they're made and reviewed by the uh, MPAA, but 
I, uh, I hear it's going to be uh, kind of interesting. Being a Quentin Tarantino movie, I can only imagine uh, that the dialogue will be probably amazing. Um, I haven't been so impressed by the recent Star Trek TV show. Uh, in fact, I was very unimpressed by it, and I, don't, I'm not, I haven't gone out of my way to watch more than the first two episodes. So I'm hoping that Quentin Tarantino can bring something back to it that it had, which somehow has been lost in the more recent movies and uh, TV versions of the show. Uh, I'm kind of old school that way. To me, Star Trek is embodied and, and, and epitomized by the Star Trek uh, original series and by the uh, movies that starred the original cast, most especially Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the most honest, true Star Trek that was ever made. Okay, guys, so that's our show for this week. Thanks for hanging in there to the, the bitter end with me. I hope you found the answers I gave interesting, informative, educational, and entertaining. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to uh, much more coming up this holiday season. By the way, if you haven't ever seen it, I did make a video about Scientology holidays uh, last year. And uh, you can find that on my channel if you're curious about how Scientologists uh, spend their holiday season. All right, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.